2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and Rob and I are
0: out this week, so we are bringing you some episodes from The Vault. This one originally published April 26th, 2022. This is part one of our series called Fire from the Rocks.
2: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. When we think about fire, and we do think about fire a lot on this show, it's come up time and time again. <laughs> Wait, are, are you confessing something? <laughs> that we that we love fire, that we worship yeah. fire, that we delight in its um, its growth and its consumption? Um, no. Uh, but it is... It must is, be fed, yeah. It must be fed. But it is a, an important aspect of, of Earth, you know? Uh, as we've discussed in, on past episodes, you know, Earth is the only planet known to have fire. And there was a time when there was no fire on Earth because it wasn't possible yet. Um, you know, fire, when we think about fire, we think about its fleeting nature, but also its potential, its tremendous power, uh, provided conditions are just Right. Um, it's, uh, it's always interesting to think about how fire is in many ways more an, an event than a thing. You, and for it to happen, you need heat, fuel, and oxygen. And the fuel and the oxygen were not always present on our planet. Uh, fire is, is more or less an aspect of the new Earth. And the earliest evidence of charred vegetation dates back a mere 440 million years. Right, so today natural
0: forest fires are just part of the cycle of life on the surface of Earth, but there was a time when Earth had its first forest fire. Can you imagine mm-hmm. that? Like the first time that ever happened?
3: Yeah, yeah, it's crazy to imagine. And so you know, this is this has been an, an aspect of life on, on Earth ever since. Um, and yeah, with, with fire, it, it's interesting too, because there's this trifecta, obviously, that's necessary for it to exist, um, but... It is a delicate tripod. Remove one of the legs of the fire tripod and the fire will perish. Uh, So our relationship with fire is sometimes like, whoa, this is out of control. And other times it is, uh, you know, I I can't get this thing to light at all. Um, You know, so I think we're all familiar with that, with the dual nature of fire. Uh, So, for today's episode, and this will uh, spill into into the next episode as well, I thought we might start with just what I thought was just a really tantalizing question because I'd never really thought about it before, not not until you brought up um, this topic, and that is, what is the longest that a single fire has raged? Uh, and I guess in, there are all sorts of sort of artificial parameters we might throw in you know what constitutes a single fire versus multiple f- fires spread out over time uh, I, I guess we kind of have to take the, the human scenario of like a, a hearth uh, or a campfire and imagine that as sort of our, our basic principle like a single a single flame that keeps eating things keeps consuming maybe it moves uh, but what is the longest that, that such a fire has raged without snuffing out completely and having to be reset uh, one way or another. Great question. Yeah. So, of course, you know the answer, and, and, I, and I know the answer, to now. But, but uh, putting ourselves in the mindset of someone who, who doesn't know the answer, you might likely turn to a few different categories to start off. And the first would be what we just talked about, forest fires. Um, so, yeah, as, as long as we've had forests and fire, uh, this has been a possibility here on Earth. Uh, many of the worst forest fires in history, though, are measured in terms of acres, destruction, and fatality rather than in time. Uh, but if you dig, dig down, you, you you can start seeing some some time stamps on things. Many of the worst are dated to just a single day. In human history. Um, Others last longer, though some of these consist of multiple blazes, so it becomes perhaps a little more of a challenge to think of a continuous fire in these cases, Uh, though in in many of the cases I think it does fit. Some wildfire seasons, of course, span many months, and then you have uh, have particular fires that have uh, raged for a period of time. There's the Coyote Fire of 1964 in Santa Barbara, California, which lasted from September 1st to October 1st. So it seems we might, th- if we're thinking about um, about modern f- forest fires, we're going to probably look at something lasting days, months, um, uh, somewhere in that range. Now, as for wildfires of yesteryear, as well as blazes caused by prehistoric extinction events, I, uh, I couldn't find many stats on this, but I suppose it's worth thinking about. Uh, but it's also worth thinking about the the fact that when you have a particularly large energetic fire, uh, it can ultimately become something in, in entirely different. It can become this this firestorm, which creates and sustains its own wind system. So, uh, I mean, I guess that's one of the reasons when we, we start looking at some of these big blazes, they do tremendous damage. They can cover a, a, a pretty large uh, um, area, but they're still not lasting that long in time because they're just eating through all of that fuel in, in a relatively short period of time. And of course, with when we're talking about wildfires, we also have to think about the fact that uh, you know the human uh, uh, civilization has a has an impact as well on just uh, how wildfires will play out through a given forest scenario. Uh, you know, and, and to a certain extent, you know, we've we've been able to to jump in with. Um, with orchestrated burns, control burns, to try and uh, uh, simulate sort of the natural cycle of fires that would normally occur. Um, But another area where you have to factor in human civilization is, of course, when you're dealing with urban fires, uh, where the the trees and various other aspects of the natural world have been remade into an artificial environment, a city. And then what happens when that catches fire? Uh, Well, I think a lot of the same practicalities are involved here as well. Some of the great fires to ravage cities uh, are often measured to a single date and time, Um, though there are some exceptions. There's There's the 146 BCE burning of Carthage, which reportedly took 17 days, but this was also said to be a systematic burning of the city by the Romans, so I'm not sure if that would count uh, so much uh, because it was it was one of these situations, obviously, where the Romans are like, "Let's burn the city down. Let's make sure everything burns through." Mm-hmm. There are some other fires that are uh, that are worth mentioning. There's the Great Fire of Utrecht uh, in the Netherlands that lasted nine days, reportedly, in 1253. There's the 1889 First Great Fire of Lynn, Massachusetts, it reportedly lasted two weeks, destroying lo- roughly a hundred buildings. So it looks like if we were going to say, look to the world of like urban fires for some sort of a a candidate for longest fire, you're going to be looking at something in the realm of days to weeks. Mm -hmm. But figures beyond that seem kind of doubtful. All right. The the next area to think about, though, would be, of course, human sustained fires. Uh, What about situations in which a human cultivated flame, a flame that's kept and fed more or less like a pet, Either for technological purposes, say like a forge or a, a pilot light, or something that's more religious or secular, uh, uh, or a secular symbol in nature. You know, something like a holy fire that's kept going, or some sort of a, a monument that has a, an eternal flame hooked up to it. I, I was shocked to discover how many monuments
0: there are that have so-called eternal flames on mm-hmm. them. Because I, I don't know, maybe it's just uh, my morbid brain, but it seems like calling a flame eternal is just tempting the fates. Like, you you know, yeah. this is not, this flame will not burn forever. It's like, settle down. You can't call it eternal. I was trying to think what you should call it instead. I I can't come up with anything. I don't know. Maybe the, the long burning flame or something, or the <laughs> attempted eternal flame. It's just, eternal is not going to happen.
3: Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, and to a certain extent, I guess this is obvious. Like, they're getting into the idea of, like, the fire is something that is, that can go out, and it has to be cultivated. And you know, a lot of these are tied to to causes and memories with the with the idea of saying, like, "Hey, let's 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 make a point of remembering this individual or remembering this cause, um, and uh, and we'll use the fire as a symbol." Uh, but, um, but, but yeah, the, the, there have been a number of these that, that have sprung up uh, just at the end of the 20th century and, and even, you know, in the 21st century. And, uh, and, and, it's also, and it's certainly with the older ones, it, it gets more difficult to, to really figure out, okay, has this been a truly a perpetual eternal fire or has it gone out uh, at least once, if not multiple times over the span of time that is attributed to it? I'm sorry that Roger Corman is invading my
0: brain right now, but I'm thinking of a line in Attack of the Crab Monsters where the giant psychic crab, uh, they are assaulting it with uh, with different types of weapons the humans are trying to defeat it. And at some point they use a fire-based weapon and the crab counters by telling them, uh, he says something like, that was quick thinking, Dale, but the pity is that all fires must one day burn out.
3: <laughs> true, it's true. Um, oh, but by the way, more... Uh, Fairly recently, someone was asking, I think, in the Discord for Stuff to Blow Your Mind, what are all the episodes in which Joe has mentioned Attack of the, the Crab Monsters? Uh, <laughs> no one had a, a clear answer, but a few, uh, a, a few episodes were brought up in, in which people remembered you, you mentioning it. We'll add this to the list. Okay. Uh, so uh, out of the various examples that come up, uh, one that I thought was pretty interesting is that of the, the Dasho-In Temple Complex in Japan that has a flame that is said to have been burning for about 1,200 years. Obviously, it's impossible to say 100% uh, you know, with something like this. Uh, and ultimately, I guess the it's the idea of the continuous flame that is most important uh, here. Uh, yeah. but uh, But still, this is an example of one that has Supposedly, been burning for over a thousand years. Now, um, this is not quite a flame, but uh, I ran across this as well, and I thought I'd mention it just because it's amusing. and And maybe we have some listeners who can uh, who can report on this firsthand. Uh, but there is something known as the Centennial Light Bulb in Livermore, California, specifically in the the firehouse there. It's been burning there uh, the bulb since 1901. Uh, though this has Whoa. not been continuous, uh, there have been power outages and electrical issues, etc. cetera. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly like what the ratio is between the, 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 the time during that century plus uh, that the light has been out versus on, but it's certainly a very old light bulb that still lights up and there is a webcam <laughs> you can like check in on its status at centennialbulb.org. So this is same filament, no no replaced parts. Mm-hmm. It's the same bulb, and it still works. Still works, yeah. Uh, and and you can go visit it. Like on the website, it has uh, information about how you can uh, see this bulb for yourself. That is very impressive because obviously this is not an LED
0: bulb or something. This is
3: mm-hmm.
0: I mean, Lord knows how they were making light bulbs in 1901, but this was
3: in some form an incandescent uh, filament based light bulb. Yes. Now, now, getting back to the idea of fire and technology, I w- I will say that uh, I I don't have an answer regarding things like pilot lights or you know forge fires, industrial flames. Uh, so there might be a really good example out there that I just couldn't find of a of a you know verified long burning pilot light or long burning forge fire that sort of thing. But if listeners out there have uh, have have something to submit on that count, uh, let us have it. Yeah.
4: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Gene! Eugene Fodor!
3: Gene, boot it.
4: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the
1: business. I understand now, it's a wise man who marries a wiser woman.
4: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio
0: app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later... The co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: So based on everything I've mentioned here, and then this very much reflects my mindset going into this, I was thinking uh, um, you know, before we did any research, before you brought up the idea of the episode, I would have guessed, well, the longest raging fire, you know, maybe, may, maybe it's, it's gone, uh, you know, a, a few weeks, a few months, uh, and, you know, if the conditions are just right, but beyond that, I mean, how, how long can a fire rage? Uh, Joe, would you like to get into, uh, uh one of the answers that, uh, that we're going to discuss in these episodes? Well, for the rest of the series, we wanted to talk about naturally-fueled
0: flames. Flames that can burn for a long, long time because humans weren't even necessary to create them. Uh, And they can arise in various ways. We're going to talk about some major categories, I think more in the next part of this series. But there are various kinds of, uh, of, of burning and ignition processes that it turns out have been going on on the surface of the Earth...
3: For hundreds or even thousands of years which of course absolutely just dwarfs everything that, that I've yeah. that I've mentioned so far it, it it really puts things on an entirely different time scale right so I, I wanted to talk in
0: uh, in this episode about uh, one example that really struck me when I was reading up for this that's sort of an odd man out it, it's not exactly uh, fitting into the other categories that we're going to be talking about in part two so I, I figured it'd be good to start with this one so In the Northwest Territories of Canada, there is a stretch of seaside cliff faces and hills along the eastern coast of a place called Cape Bathurst, where the earth and the rocks themselves seem to be perpetually burning, and they have been that way probably for thousands of years. In English, this place is known as the Smoking Hills or sometimes the Smoky Mountains, not to be confused with the ones in, uh, along the Tennessee-North Carolina border. Mm. Different Smoky Mountains, uh, literally smoking in this case. But in the language of the Inuvialuit, and these are the, the people native to the Western Canadian Arctic region, it is known as Ingniruat, which means big fire. And I was poking around for good historical resources on this place. A lot of the articles I dug up actually seemed rather confused, offering contradictory details about early observations. So the best thing I found was a piece in a magazine called Tusayaksat, which is a publication devoted to the language, culture, and history of the Inuvialuit. This article is by Charles Arnold, and it's called Ing Niryuat, the Smoking Hills of Franklin Bay. So Arnold identifies the earliest written account of the Smoking Hills as one tracing back to a Scottish naturalist, explorer, and naval surgeon named Sir John Richardson, who wrote about the hills in the 1820s while documenting an expedition that he made to chart the coastlines of northern Canada. And as a side note, this mission was actually organized in cooperation with another Arctic explorer, Sir John Franklin, who uh, many years later in 1845 would head up the infamous Lost Franklin Expedition, the goal of which was to fully chart a northwest sea passage through Canada. They were hoping to find a way to get around the, the northern part of the continent by water. Uh, obviously, this is, even though, you know, if you look at a map, you'll see a lot of gaps between the islands of northern Canada this is more difficult than it might sound because often these waterways are are choked with ice. So when Franklin got lost in the 1840s, he, he was trying to find this Northwest Passage. And if you want to know more, you, you can look up what's uh, known and unknown about the voyage of the HMS Terror and the HMS Erebus, uh, if you want some good hair-raising mystery with hints of cannibalism.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a fabulous story. Um uh, you know, what we've been able to piece together over the years through, you know, the original history and then the, the finding of the, the wreckage and so forth. Uh, Dan Simons wrote a fictional take on The Terror and the Erebus titled The Terror, uh, which was a brick of a book that was then made in, uh, to an excellent AMC miniseries a few years back. Uh, in this, Franklin is played by the actor Kieran Hines, uh, but uh, yeah, I highly recommend this series. It's a wonderful mix of detailed historic depiction, uh, as well as fantasy and horror. Uh, Jared Harris and Tobias Menzies also star in that. Uh, it's really good. Rob, can you do a, a short version of
0: what we actually do know about the the, the Lost Franklin expedition?
3: Well, uh, uh, there's a killer monster that shows up. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's the, that's the that's the, the miniseries I'm thinking of. Um, I mean, it's really, really a story we could get into with the full episodes, uh, really. But, uh, but basically, you have these two vessels that were that were seeking the, the Northwest Passage, and they went missing. And, the, and you, you get into like what happened to the crew, like how long were they marooned out there in the ice? You know, their ships locked in, frozen in. Uh, where did where did they get to? Did anybody actually you know make it out? It's presumed, I think, still that they they all died. But uh, you know, there's a lot of um, there's been a lot of analysis uh, over the years about uh, you know what happened to them, and then and then later on we we actually found the wreckages. There's a famous painting I think
0: that has to do with this uh, with the this lost voyage called. It's got a really metal album name. It's called something like Man Proposes, God Disposes or something. Hmm. Um, and it's the painting is just of polar bears fighting over scraps of the wreckage.
3: Yeah, yeah. For the, for the longest, the, the the wreckage was 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 just lost entirely. But it was yeah, 2014 uh, in September of 2014, an expedition by Parks Canada discovered first the Erebus, and then two years later they found the Terror as well. Well, anyway, coming back to the story, sorry. Uh, So, Dr.
0: John Richardson, the the author of the account I'm about to cite, was not involved in the Lost Expedition. Uh, He he just was an early collaborator with Franklin. So, uh, turning back to his survey several decades earlier, in traveling along the shore of the place that would come to be known as Franklin Bay, Richardson made some observations of something marvelous. Cliffs that themselves appeared to be, quote, on fire, giving out smoke, and where the ground appeared to consist of, quote, burnt clays, variously colored yellow, white, and deep red. I found another source uh, quoting one of Richardson's accounts where he says, uh, quote, At Cape Bathurst, the northern end of Franklin Bay, Bituminous shale is exposed in many places and in my visit there in 1826 was in a state of ignition and the clays which had been thus exposed to the heat were baked and vitrified so that the spot resembled an old brickfield and I will say I understand what Richard is is getting at here of course brickfields are places where bricks are manufactured you can look these up on the internet and you can see the resemblance with the, the unnatural look of the baked earth But when I look at pictures of the Smoking Hills, my computer-ruined brain sees these landscapes, and unfortunately, the first place it goes is that it looks like a level in doom. Yeah, yeah,
3: it does. Um, It it also, I have to say, it it looks kind of delicious. Like, I'm also reminded of, I don't know, like red velvet cake. It's like red velvet (laughs) cake emerging from the earth.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's very interesting the way they produce these protruding rock formations they're very jagged uh and they they seem to be rather resistant to weathering compared to the the unbaked rock all around them which is more mm-hmm. smoothed over
3: yeah very jagged very and very bloody looking in some cases so yeah it looks like some sort of rock formation that is just uh, gouged into the flesh of a titan Totally. So that's what Richardson saw in the
0: 1820s. He says, hey, we, you know, we went past these cliffs. They appeared to be on fire. They're giving off smoke. We see a lot of burnt clay. It's yellow, white, and deep red. Very weird. Looks like an old brick field. But then the written history of the Smoking Hills continues after the disappearance of the Franklin Expedition in the 1840s. So Franklin, uh, the two ships, Franklin and the crews go missing. And in the year 1850 a ship called the HMS Investigator under the command of Captain Robert McClure was searching for survivors of the Franklin Party in the area around Franklin Bay, once again, when the uh, crew of this ship came across the same weird sight cliffs by the sea that were strangely covered and were giving off plumes of smoke. And at first they thought these might be campfires or signals from the Franklin survivors, so they sent out a small boat to... Check it out, see what's going on. But no, it was not survivors of the Franklin mission. Uh, Arnold, in his article, identifies testimony left by a Moravian missionary named Johann Mierching, who was a member of the shore party. And uh, this is one where I really wanted to find the original text, but I don't, I can't, if this has been digitized anywhere, I could not find it. It appears to be from uh, what's called the Arctic Diary of Johann Mierching, 1850 to 1854. Uh, that, was, uh, that was published in print form in Toronto in 1967, uh, but, uh, but I couldn't find the digital version, so I'm, I'm relying on Arnold's summaries of, of what Mirching says. But he says that uh, when they got to the source of the smoke, they found no human life, alive or dead, only, quote, a thick smoke emerging from various vents in the ground and a smell of sulfur so strong that we could not approach the smoke pillar nearer than 10 or 15 feet. Flame there was none, but the ground was so hot that it scorched the soles of our feet. Arnold says that Mirching compared the landscape to a huge chemical factory. He says that water from nearby ponds had been fouled by something from the earth and that it, uh, that the water tasted sour. And they brought back samples of rocks from the Smoking Hills, brought them back to the ship, where uh, Mirching apparently claims that they ended up burning a hole in the mahogany table where Captain McClure kept them. So they took some rocks back to the captain and they're burning up his
3: furniture. You know this. This reminds me again of um, of the the, the mini series of the Terror because one of the things that they they stress in that show and uh, and uh, they have some of the, uh, the the people involved in the production that, that mentioned this as well. They mentioned that when they were researching the ships to portray them on the show, uh, there was this, uh, this this realization that you know these were some of the most advanced uh, vessels of any kind of that time period, and if we were to compare them. Uh, to uh, to our modern world, we might well compare them to spaceships. We might well think of them in terms of 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 something that is meant to to venture beyond our atmosphere. Um, and And here we have one of the and and, uh, and specifically, this was referring to the the terror and the Erebus. I'm not quite sure about the investigator, but I'm assuming that it that it may have been a similar uh, in a similar fashion, may have been a very advanced ship. Uh-huh. Um, but but here they are with the ship, essentially, Arriving at an alien landscape, you know it must have just been such a, a, a strange sight to behold. Here you are on uh, this, you know, this far-flung and, and ultimately very, very hostile, very dangerous environment. And here, here are shores where things are are bloody and burning, and it's like a chemical vat. Uh, you bring a piece of it inside the ship, and it begins to burn a hole through the the, the table in front of you. It's amazing.
4: Yeah. Yeah. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Jean. Eugene Fodor! Jean,
3: what's we'll the
4: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and last on the
1: business. I understand now, it's a wise man Marie's marries a wiser woman.
4: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio
0: app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days, and later The co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: But We Loved is a new podcast about queer history coming May 15th. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called Survival Sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance.
0: I wanted to take control of my story
4: and not be ashamed of it.
1: And it was a history full of love.
4: The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible.
1: And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself, From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So here I guess we come to the question of what is actually causing these hills to smoke, you might assume, uh, based on background knowledge, that, well, okay, if there's heat and sulfurous gas coming out of the ground, the source is volcanic, right? That, that would be the, the obvious mm. assumption.
3: Yeah, that's where your mind instantly goes, yeah. But in this case, no. Uh, I found
0: one source on this that, that was pretty helpful. It was a paper called, Why Do the Smoking Hills Smoke? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Um, It was published in the Canadian Journal of Earth Sciences in 1984 by W.H. Matthews and R.M. Buston. And this paper invokes a term that I'd never heard before. It refers to areas of fire-baked rock as, um, I think this word is French, so I think it would be pronounced bocan, but it's B-O-C-A-N-N-E-S. Hmm. And the authors write that you find these these fire-baked rocks in, quote, Cretaceous mudstones along sea cliffs and in areas of recent slumping. So the fire baking of the rocks and the earth lead to these weird patterns of coloration that can easily be seen with the naked eye and that we heard described in the literary sources we just mentioned. So these color changes include bleaching and reddening of the mudstone, which is otherwise dark in color. And these colors can remain even after one of the bokans has stopped burning. And in uh, places where these rocks are still burning and baking, you get smoke pouring out, you get sulfurous fumes, as well as high ground temperatures. So the, the earth you walk on gets hot. So what's the cause? Well, the authors of this paper, they performed a number of different analyses, including petrographic, uh, mineralogical, chemical, and calorific uh, analyses. And they determined that, quote, the bocan are fumed by oxidation of pyrite and or organic matter. With heating of the strata by oxidation, combustible gases are driven off that may burn in restricted areas, resulting in localized melting of the strata. Uh, so in reading this and a few other sources and putting things together, I, I think I understand this now. And trying to put my understanding into other words, a lot of the rock in this area is mudstone or, or a type of shale rock, Uh, Mudstone is a sedimentary rock that can contain hydrocarbon or organic content, so some amount of fossil fuel is naturally present in this rock, even if in low concentrations. And in this case, one of the main carbon constituents seems to be a form of lignite, which is a soft brown type of coal that is generally formed by the underground compression of peat. But this rock also contains a significant amount of iron pyrite, a, a mineral form of, uh, of iron sulfide, which um, is also known as fool's gold.
3: Yeah, uh, and, you know, it's, I think it's always a shame we call it fool's gold because it implies that it's, to a certain extent, that it's ugly and it's without value. But uh, <laughs> pyrite can, can look quite impressive. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen examples of it in, um, uh, in mineral museums before. Uh, and uh, and of course, in the fact that it can be used um, you know, to ignite something, uh, I believe it was used in uh, in firearms uh, in the past. Um,
0: hmm. I did not know that, but that would make sense now. Uh, hmm. Reading about this, because so so so, what's going on here is that um, when the cliff faces erode here at at the Smoking Hills, and new faces of the mudstone strata are exposed to oxygen in the atmosphere. The carbon-based fuel and the natural iron pyrite uh, together undergo oxidation, a chemical reaction which leads to heating. the The oxidation of the iron pyrite here is an exothermic reaction; it heats up the the surrounding rock. And this oxidation-based heating leads to the release of flammable gases that are embedded in the rock. And so, the authors think when these gases are released, they they Become a form of fuel evaporating in an environment of extreme heat with exposure to oxygen. So, here you have the three magic ingredients right? You have fuel escaping, you have it's very hot, and you have oxygen nearby, so they burn. And these fires further heat and melt the strata of the rock. And I believe the implication is that this melting. Uh, This melting and baking helps continue to reveal new faces of strata to the atmosphere so that more oxidation can happen and the process can just continue. It's auto-ignition. It ignites automatically by being exposed to the oxygen and the process is self-sustaining. The authors write that you tend to find these Bokan only in places where the strata of sedimentary rock has been suddenly exposed to the atmosphere, maybe by a landslide or some other form of erosion, or erosion uh, that's left behind after the retreat of glaciers. Now, coming back to these historical accounts, while the stories from Richardson and the McClure Expedition are the earliest written accounts of the Smoking Hills, Uh Inuvialuit oral traditions about the mountains have been in circulation for much longer. Uh, As I mentioned, the the traditional name for this place is uh Ingniruat, which means big fire. And this article by Charles Arnold, then uh, after it recounts the, uh, the the literary section, it goes into a section on the oral tradition, including one excellent story that was told to the Danish anthropologist Knud Rasmussen in 1924 by a person living in the Cape Bathurst area named Aunaraitseik. So this is the story told by uh, Aunaraitseik, re- recounted to Rasmussen and, and quoted in Arnold here. In the early infancy of man, people were never alone, whether they lived in a settlement or were traveling on long journeys. They were surrounded by a spirit people, who lived as human beings and were in fact human beings, except that they were invisible. Their bodies were not for our eyes, or their voices for our ears. And when people traveled and pitched camp and began to build their snow huts, One might see round about the snowdrifts that the snow blocks began to move, being lifted out of the drifts, and piled together into a snowhouse which seemed to grow of itself. Occasionally, one might see the glitter of a copper knife, and that was all. They did not mind people coming into their houses, which were arranged just like those of human beings. All their belongings were visible, and people could trade with them very profitably. If one wished to buy something, all that was necessary was to point to it, and at the same time, show what one was prepared to give for it. If the spirit people agreed, the object required lifted itself up and moved towards the man who wanted it. But if they declined the bargain, the object remained where it was. So people were never alone. They always had small, silent, and invisible spirits around them. But one day it happened that, during a halt, a man seized his knife and cried, What do we want with these people who are always right on our heels? Saying this, he flourished his knife in the air and thrust it in the direction of the snow huts that had made themselves. Not a sound was heard, but the knife was covered in blood. From that moment, the spirits went away. Never again did anyone see the wondrous sight of snowdrifts forming themselves into snow huts when one made camp, and forever the people lost their silent, invisible guardian spirits. It was said that they had gone to live inside the mountains in order to hide from man who had mocked and wounded their feelings. That is why, to this day, one can see the mountains smoking from the enormous cooking fires flaming inside them. Oh, wow, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I thought this was beautiful. It also made me so sad that like the humans betrayed their their invisible companions.
3: Yeah, yeah, and uh, but it, it also, of course, reminds me of, uh, of of various other accounts that you see, particularly uh, like Irish traditions, where you have uh, the, these traditions of the pr- the former people or other other intelligent beings, be they some sort of spirit folk or, or or what have you, or something very humanoid in form, and they've been driven into the earth. Uh, by the newer people. And we see a similar trend here.
0: Yeah, yeah. Arnold cites stories remembered by other Inuvialuit people uh, uh, of the present, describing their their memories of the stories about these people, uh, describing the smoke from the hills as the cooking fires of the little people who live mm-hmm. inside the mountains. And there was one uh, story he recorded that really struck me. This was wonderful. Uh, this was quoting uh, a source named Fred Wolke, who said, quote, they're as big as a fork that you eat with. They use a caribou's ear for a parka. They turn it inside out and they just have to put it on. Just take the inside off, skin it, a ready-made parka. Oh, wow. One thing that strikes me as interesting is how uh, there's a convergence on everyone identifying in some way the Smoking Hills or ing uh, nir as, as artificial in nature, so... In, in these oral traditions, the smoke coming off of the hills are the cooking fires of the little people or the invisible people living inside the mountain, but uh, also some of the earliest written records like uh, uh, Mirching's uh, compared the, the area to a huge chemical factory. Richard compared it to a brick field. Both of these are products of human industry. It's yeah. interesting that, that everybody uh, seems to look at these things and think artificial, made by people.
3: Yeah, I mean, we just as as Earth is the the fire planet, like we are the people of fire. We are the only organism that uh, that has come to master it, and uh, and, and created works with it. So, uh, yeah, it it, it it makes sense that, uh, that that various cultures would look to this, and their mind would at least temporarily go in the same direction. In any case, coming back to
0: the question about some of the longest burning fires. Um, I guess part of this would be dependent on what you're, what you're counting as a fire when you look at something. So like, uh, I think the smoking Hills, you will often not I mean, some, maybe sometimes you will, but you will often not be seeing big gouts of flames. Like you would see at a, at a campfire. You'll just see this continuous smoking and baking of the rock. And so the, the burning there I think would be more akin to what you'd see probably with like a, a burning coal, you know, a piece of coal yeah. that has been ignited, but considering that, we we can know for pretty sure that the smoking hills have probably been burning for hundreds or thousands of years. And there are multiple ways you can know this. I think there are some geological methods. But I actually came across one study offering one interesting piece of evidence uh, for how long these hills had been burning that uh, I wouldn't have thought of, which was archaeology. So there was a paper by Raymond J. LeBlanc in American Antiquity in 1991 called Prehistoric Clinker Use on the Cape Bathurst Peninsula, Northwest Territories Canada, The Dynamics of Formation and Procurement. And talking about the background going into this study, uh, LeBlanc says, quote, Fieldwork conducted on the Cape Bathurst Peninsula, and that's where the Smoking Hills are, Um, has resulted in the discovery of 75 sites representing occupation spanning more than 3,000 years. Nearly all of these sites are characterized by the predominant use of a distinctive rock called a clinker. Resembling a basalt to obsidian-like material, it is formed by the spontaneous combustion of local organic-rich shales. So, some of the the weird baked rocks left over at these auto-ignition sites, like Ingniruat, Uh, These rocks have been used to make tools by the people living in the area spanning back thousands of years. And I I found that so interesting, too, that you would take these these strange clinker rocks and, and turn them into technology.
3: Yeah, yeah. From this, th- from from this site that we interpret through the the lens of biotechnology. Interesting.
0: Now, one more paper I wanted to mention before I'm I'm done with the Smoking Hills is by uh, Magda Havas and Thomas C. Hutchinson, uh, published in Nature in 1983, called "The Smoking Hills: Natural Acidification of an Aquatic Ecosystem." So you remember how those early reports of, of the area, uh, report uh, they said that the water of nearby ponds was foul and sour? Mm-hmm. Well, we know why that happens now. This is due to the acidification of the water by the sulfur dioxide produced by these mineral burning sites. So the water is very acidic, and this has actually changed the composition of the local microbial life and and insect life and stuff, the life that inhabits the area. So the authors here write, quote, In an area of typically alkaline ponds with pH above 8.0, ponds within the fumigation zone have been acidified below a pH of 2.0. Elevated concentrations of metals, including aluminum, iron, zinc, nickel, manganese, and cadmium, occur in these acidic ponds. Soils and sediments have also been chemically altered. The biota in these acidic ponds are characteristic of acidic environments worldwide, in contrast to the typically Arctic biota in adjacent alkaline ponds. So, the burning of the earth alters the chemical characteristics of the landscape, which in turn change the bioecology. The the chain reaction started thousands of years ago when these cliff faces and rocks were eroded and uh, exposed the the minerals to oxygen. The oxidation of the pyrite and the organic contents of the mudstone and the burning began, and this led to, over the thousands of years, a complete transformation of the surrounding ecosystem into one of these uh, strange extremophile acid-rich uh, biosystems.
3: Wow, that's impressive. Um you know, and, and in thinking about this, and thinking about you know extreme environments, and uh, and uh, and so forth, and and also kind of going back to the idea of these uh, these, these these ships being sort of like spaceships uh, sailing upon these uh, these strange alien uh, seeming environment. I, I ran across a a twenty twenty two paper in Chemical Geology, the Journal Chemical Geology, by Grasby et al that looked at the Smoking Hills as a possible analog for some geological conditions that have been observed on Mars. Mm. Um, uh, just to read a quick quote, um, oxidative weathering of this unit creates extensive gerocyte-rich deposits and banded gerocyte and phyllosilicate-rich mudstones similar to those observed on Mars. So uh, I, I read th- through this paper here, and it's it's, and it's pretty... Pretty deeply, uh, it's a chemical geology journal, so it's, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit dense uh, for, for my taste anyway. But the authors, if I'm understanding this correctly, they're, they're suggesting that such signs on Mars, some, some similar looking uh, details that we've observed on Mars uh, via the probes we've sent there, uh, if we interpret them through the lens of the Smoking Hills, it could possibly suggest a more habitable period in Mars' ancient past. Uh, so, uh, uh, fascinating to think about that as well. Absolutely. So I think maybe this is where we need to cap it for part
0: one here, but, uh, there's so much more to talk about because the world is full of surprising and fascinating naturally fueled flames. And I think it will make for a a carnival of geological wonders to, to explore in, in the next part of this series.
3: That's right. So tune in on Thursday as we continue with more fire from the rocks. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Um, I think most of the invention episodes that we recorded, several of which dealt with fire technology and fire-related technology, uh, I think most of those have been republished, if not all of them have been republished in this feed. But if not, you can also find the, the podcast feed for Invention out there. Um, that was a, a, a fun, though short-lived show that we did on the side dealing with inventions. Um, in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, though, we also do listener mail on Mondays. We do a uh, short-form artifact or monster fact on Wednesdays. And on Friday, we do something called Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange, Film.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at Stuff to Blow Stuff
2: to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800 333 4Kia for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10 year 100,000 mile powertrain and 5 year 60,000 mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.
4: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
0: Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good